Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're back in the book of Luke. And uh, we left off at Luke chapter 6. So we had Joe Brehob with us for a few weeks. Joe Brehob is an elder from Green Tree, and I thought he did just a great job preaching through Abraham, uh, preaching in Genesis. He had some incredible insights, and we're really grateful uh, for him. Um, But we're back in Luke today. Uh, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1 through verse 11, the word of God. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing in their hands, uh, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Father God, now we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us through this passage. I pray, O God, that my words would be filled with grace and challenge, that we would conform ourselves to what your word teaches us, because your word is truth. We remember that Jesus did not pray that we would be taken out of the world, but that the world through him might have life, and that we might be sanctified in the truth, and thy word is truth. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well... I've shared with you in the past how I spent many years working in the grocery industry. And about six years into, um, I started when I was, I don't know, 16, going on 17. And right around my early 20s, I got a promotion to management. And I was the fourth key carry in this grocery store with about 120 employees. So there was the store director, number one, the grocery manager, and the third key. And I was the fourth key. And I was 23 years old. And I came in at 4 p.m., and all the big bosses would count over the safe to me, and they all three of them went home at five an hour later. And I was the guy in charge. And I was just a young kid, and I was telling people twice my age what, you know, telling them what to do. And I got a name badge, a fancy name badge, and I got a company tie, and, um, and I got a little, a little raise. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> And it was, it, was, it was a great challenge. And right around that time, 
um, we had just installed an $80,000 um, security system, high-tech cameras all over the store, and I would take my lunch at about 8 o'clock in the evening, and I'd go up to the office upstairs, which had this massive panoramic window, and I could see the entire store from one end to the other. I mean, I was like the admiral of a massive you know, ship. And for fun, I would just cruise the cameras. I mean, they were high-tech. I could punch in which camera, and I could zoom down and see you know, the fingernail polish on someone. I, I, that sounds creepy. I didn't do that. But I'm saying I, I could do that if I wanted to. Uh, but usually, I just cruised around looking for suspicious people. And, um, and it was a lot of fun. I worked with loss prevention, and we'd catch people stealing. And I have to admit, it was fun. People, they'd break the rules and... and um, one time, a guy walked through the door, and I saw him come in, and he was dressed nice. He was probably in his 40s, and I thought, oh, yeah, no, that guy's a law-abiding citizen. And I was cruising the cameras, and I came back onto the liquor camera, which accidentally was right above his head. He had wandered into the, the liquor department, and, you know, I was eating my chicken sandwich or something, and uh, he opened up one of the liquor coolers where all the beer is, and he took two beers out, and he walked around the side aisle on the far, you can't see me, but the far end of the store, and he went like this, and mind you, I'm right above the guy on a camera, and he goes like this, and he goes, and he puts him in his pants, and he, he goes to walk out the store. And, you know, I've got like a Coke and a chicken sandwich, and I didn't know what to do, <clears throat> and as he hits the corner to walk out the front door, I pick up the PA, and I say, sir, please put those beers back. And it was like the voice of God. And he stopped dead in his tracks, and he turned around, and he walked, you know, ashamed and, you know, probably embarrassed, and walked back to the liquor department, and he puts the beers back, and he grabs something else, and he goes and he gets in line, you know. And there were other times when uh, we would catch people, you know, a woman with $100 worth of Maybelline, you know, mascara or whatever it was in their purse. And we would, you know, catch them on the way out, and oh, they would break into tears, and oh, the story, you know, it fell in my purse. I'm like, $100 worth of makeup fell in your purse. And they knew they were in trouble. You know, they were getting arrested and all these different things. And I was enforcing the rules, because that was our company policy. You couldn't steal. And by golly, I was a young, zealous new manager, and you steal on my shift, and I'm going to get you. And uh, we got a lot of people. <laughs> but there were times that I chose not to enforce the rules. Uh, like the one time, uh, an older woman, maybe in her 70s in tattered clothes, was standing 10 feet from me and stuffed a carton of eggs into her purse. And uh, I saw her, and in that moment I decided... You know, I had to make up my mind what I was going to do. And I did nothing. And another time when a young homeless mother came in with her child in a stroller that was barely worked, and she stuffed a um, can of baby formula into uh, her stroller. And I decided at those moments that the right thing to do was actually not to enforce the rules because there was great need. And the compassion and mercy in me overflowed to the point where enforcing the rules would have actually been the wrong thing to do. And I had the authority to let them go um, 
And in those rare moments, I did. I let them go. In our passage this morning, um, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a big deal for the Jewish people in the first century. Sabbath-keeping was a rule and a regulation of the Mosaic law. And it was a chief badge of identity for the people of God in a hostile pagan world where, they were, where their nation was occupied by the Romans. And um, it was a sign to their neighbors that they were God's special people. They kept the Sabbath. They were Sabbath-keeping people. It was, it was a, a law of Moses. It was actually the fourth commandment. And it was a big deal. I dare say it is a big deal. Um, and this is during a time when people had an incredibly high view of the Sabbath. Now, our problem today is just the opposite. We have an incredibly low view of the Sabbath. And at the end of our sermon, I'm going to discuss that just a little bit. But a principal source of controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees was the right use of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of what? Day of rest. In fact, the word Sabbath in Hebrew, Shabbat, means cease, rest, desist. And it's the fourth commandment, as I mentioned a minute ago. And in Exodus 20 and 9, it says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, which means that even though you're an Israelite, you have a resident alien who doesn't obey your laws or doesn't necessarily worship Yahweh, that you can't make them work either. For in six days the Lord God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Pharisees, it was their habit to hedge the law. In other words, they wanted to protect God's regulations and rules, and so what they would do is create even greater regulations and rules just so you wouldn't even get close to the edge of violating God's command. And they wanted to avoid even the possibility of people breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus doesn't so much argue um, that the regulations should be relaxed as much as he's arguing to the Pharisees that they've misunderstood what the Sabbath is for. They've misunderstood it. And as far as Jesus is concerned, it's not only a day of rest, but it's a day in which good deeds should be done and human suffering alleviated. And so in our text this morning, there's this question about plucking grain on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are going through a field, and if you can imagine it, here's this field of wheat, and they're hungry, it's the Sabbath, and they grab these heads of wheat, and the way it works is the kernel of, of the grain of wheat is hidden within a little husk, and you rub it in your hands, and the little grain comes out, and you can eat that. And so they were going through the field, and they were rubbing the, the wheat in their hand, and they were pulling out the grains, and they were eating that. Now, 
the Pharisees aren't so much complaining that they're stealing, um, but in verse 2 they say, why are you doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, what, what, uh, the reason Jesus and the disciples are able to do this is because in Deuteronomy 23 and 24, there's actually a provision in the law of Moses that if you're hungry and you go through someone else's vineyard, you can eat as much as will fill you up, but you can't walk out of the field with a basket. You can go into a grain field, you can pluck as much wheat as you can with your hands, but you can't take a sickle and harvest someone else's field. So it's perfectly lawful to do that, grazing, to graze someone else's field as you're passing through if you're hungry. And that's not the Pharisees' problem. Their problem uh, is they're of the opinion that the act of plucking grain on the Sabbath specifically violates the prohibition against work. Do you understand the issue at, at work here, at stake? They're thinking, you're working on the Sabbath. You are, you're doing work on the Sabbath, something that is strictly prohibited by the word of God. And they're concerned with protecting the law of Moses, and as far as they're concerned, the actions of Jesus' disciples are illegal. And just so you know, we don't think about religious regulations the way they did. In those days, the law of Moses was the actual law of the land. You could be arrested for violating the law of Moses. The religious laws, they, so we have, we have a completely different mindset today, right? No one's, get, no one's getting arrested, let alone a ticket, you know? I mean, maybe some churches give you a pink slip, I don't know. But, I mean, you know, most Christians, I mean, that's not the way we think about God's rules and regulation. If we have a price to pay, we're going to pay, you know, that price to God. But in their day, it was serious business. People could be arrested and stoned to death for a grievance against the law. But, of course, there's this tension with the Romans who, are this, who have this overarching legal apparatus and situation. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by quoting a story from 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. And if you know the story, David and his men were on the run from Saul. And Saul was king, but David had been anointed to be king, but it took him many years to actually ascend the throne in Israel. And him and his men are on the run, and they're hungry, and they go into the tabernacle, and the priest, this is a story Jesus is alluding to, the priest gives David and his men, the, it's called the bread of the presence. So just like we have this little loaf here every, every uh, Sunday that we do communion with, well, they had 12 loaves that they brought in every week for the Sabbath, 12 loaves. And the loaves from the week before that were left over because the priests were the only one who were allowed to eat it, it was essentially holy bread. It was the bread of the presence. It was essentially a memorial sacrifice of food to God, not because God was hungry, but saying, we've put aside this food that we otherwise, the, the people could eat. We've, we're putting it before God as a memorial of God's providence and goodness to us, his people. And only the priests would eat. And there were usually four or five or six loaves left over. And they would destroy those loaves because only the priest could eat it. But David comes in hungry, and he eats of the outgoing bread, right? They're replacing these loaves. The priest has some left over. Even though it's only lawful for the priest, David and his men eat. Why? Why does the priest give David and his men these loaves? Because there's need. Because they're hungry. They're probably famished. 
And so the priest recognizes there's a human need that supersedes these minute regulations. Does that make sense? So this is what Jesus is alluding to. He says, don't you remember the story of David who ate this, ate the bread of the presence? A modern example would be if we were having communion and someone came in off the street starving and one of the elders broke the loaf in half and said, here. Right? The wrong decision would be to say, no, 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 this is for us. This is for, this is for our, you know, the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. Because in all reality, we only pick a little, little pieces off the bread when we do communion. So it'd be the equivalent of giving half the loaf to someone who's starving off the street. Another example of human need superseding a regulation would be a pregnant wife whose husband is speeding to get her to the hospital because her water just broke. He's breaking the law and maybe endangering people, but there's a higher priority here, and that's to save the life of his wife and unborn child. And this is what Jesus is getting at. What he's saying is, when people are in need, there is a higher priority than keeping certain regulations because the highest regulation always is mercy, compassion, and the preservation of life. This is, this is what Jesus is driving at. One more illustration to drive the point home, and this is a heartbreaking story. In Saudi Arabia some years ago, you may remember the story of 15 schoolgirls who died in a school fire. The school was on fire, and the religious police showed up, and the girls, because it was a, a girls' school, and they were probably in the part of the school where they did not have the hijab, the head covering. They were not covered and probably couldn't get access to that part of the school because the school was on fire. And the religious police, because it was against Sharia law, against the laws of Islam and against the laws of Saudi Arabia, for women to be on the street without their head covering, without a male escort, let all 15 girls burn to death. This is what Jesus is challenging. Now that's heartbreaking, and it breaks my heart to say that. A horrific image of someone who is so wrapped up in the idea of regulations that they completely neglect the most important thing, and that's the preservation of life for the, those who bear God's image, other human beings. And in Hosea 6 and 6, God says to Israel, who at this time is a rebellious people, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is to say that the sacrificial system itself existed only to take care of people's sins and hard-heartedness. Which was to say that God was communicating, I would just rather you obey, you wouldn't need to do sacrifice. If you obeyed, the whole purpose of sacrifice was to atone for the disobedience, the hard heart, and the lack of mercy. And Jesus' point is that David, in his actions, is not condemned because there's a human need, and that human needs supersede religious regulations. So the Pharisees, once again, completely miss the point. This is something we see over and over in Luke. And Jesus is confronting the fact that the Pharisees, they just keep missing it. They just keep missing the point. 
And what mattered then wasn't so much that Jesus' followers were breaking the Sabbath. They were and they weren't, depending on how you interpreted the law of Moses. But what mattered is that Jesus was the coming king who had the right to suspend even the sacred Sabbath law when necessary. And Jesus says in verse 5, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And in verses 6 through 11, he drives the point home even more. On another Sabbath, Jesus is in the synagogue, he's teaching, and a man comes in with a withered hand, and he calls the man up before everyone in the synagogue, and he tells him to come forward, and this is essentially, Jesus is not being very sensitive at all to the sensibilities of the religious leaders. He's not concerned not to hurt anyone's feelings, he's not concerned, well, I don't want to cause trouble, I'd like to be winsome, you know, I want an attractive attractional model of church or something like that. I mean, you know, he's, he says, these people are wrong and I'm going to rub it in their face that their thinking about the law is so messed up. And so he does things deliberately to collide with the Pharisees. And he calls a man who has a withered hand. So imagine someone who, whose hand just you know, looks like this from birth. I mean, it's just deformed. And you know, it's not he's got like a muscle cramp. It's just maybe deformed from birth. And he's like this. And Jesus calls the man forward and looks around and asks them, you tell me what's lawful on the Sabbath, to, to take life or to preserve it? You know, to save life or to destroy it? And he tells the man, stretch forward your hand. And as he stretches forward his hand, it becomes whole in front of the entire assembly. And instead of rejoicing, right, they are furious. And what's important for us to understand when we look at this story is that God meets us in our need. And anything that stops up mercy and compassion in us for others in their need invalidates our religiosity. When we close up our hearts towards others in need, our religion in that moment is vain, right? James says, if any man seem to be religious, let him care for who? Who knows how to finish that sentence? If anyone seems to be religious, let them take care of the widows and the fatherless. Jesus is saying, you want to prove you're religious? Have compassion and mercy on your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Care for those in need. Pour out your heart to those in suffering. Which is to say that if we keep God's rules and regulations for our lives in the area of personal holiness, and we should, but close up our hearts towards others, our religion is just for show. It's just nothing more than a spectacle. In Mark 2.27, this story is told, but Mark adds the words, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is showing us that the gospel, that living the gospel entails compassion towards those in need because this is God's heart, right? 
God's heart of compassion for human beings was embodied in the love of Jesus Christ and the things he commanded and the things he did. So in both ways, the gospel is shown to be a matter of the heart, a heart of faith towards God and a heart of compassion towards others. Now I'm going to do something here that may seem a little unorthodox, but I want to take Jesus' words about the Sabbath that I've just been talking about for the last 15 minutes or so, and I want to sort of turn them on their head, because as I mentioned at the beginning of our sermon this morning, our problem, right, so Jesus spoke into a context, our context is a little different. The truth remains the same, the principle remains the same, but our context is different. Jesus' day, the Pharisees have an ultra-high view of the Sabbath. They have a view of the Sabbath that is even higher than Scripture, an inappropriately high view. Our problem, well, today, the day and age we live in, we have the opposite issue. We have far too low a view of the Sabbath, far too low. And um, their problem was legalism. Our problem is license, which means we just go, eh, Sabbath, yeah, whatever. You know, and we tend to treat um, we tend to treat grace um, and permission, right? Um, that God gives us, right, to the perfect law of liberty, um, and it can make us ambivalent about the fourth commandment. And for a lot of us, it's just because we haven't had enough teaching on the subject, right? All right, the Jews had the Sabbath that was different. We know we're not under the law of Moses. Obviously, there's some discontinuity there. How do we honor the fourth commandment, right? In fact, I would say most Christians just kind of really treat the Ten Commandments as the Nine Commandments. Because we, we, you know, we, look at, um, we look at the Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Yep, got it. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yep, rightio. Don't murder. Gotcha. Don't commit adultery. Yep. Don't steal. Absolutely. Don't covet. I hear you. But for some reason, the words... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We're kind of like, eh. That's just, that's just where we're at as a culture. Uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, things were closed on Sunday, but that's not where we are today. And I want to say, if I can just talk a little bit about our identity as a church, as Presbyterians, we've, we have a high view of the fourth commandment. In our confession, Westminster Confession 21 says, The Sabbath is then to keep holy unto the Lord when men men or women, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of the common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercise of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy." So the confession says it's not just about worship and church, it's also about rest, and it's also about the duties of necessity and mercy, right? So it's certainly broader than the Old Testament concept. But I want to say here this morning that coming to church on Sunday, which early on Christians understood to be how Christians honor the fourth commandment. You could call it the Christian Sabbath if you want. In fact, it has been universally observed for 2,000 years. Christians have observed, um, have come to church on Sunday, the first day of the week, referred to even in Scripture as the Lord's Day, and that fact is so well established that I don't even need to defend it this morning. 
But Sunday service isn't meant to be a burden on you. It's meant to be a blessing. And this is what the Pharisees didn't understand, that God had given the Sabbath, right? God didn't create man for the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath for man. And so when we come together on Sunday mornings, I'm going to make a quick aside, right? Sometimes we miss church because of vacation, we have to work, or there's an emergency, right? I get that. We all get that, right? There are just sometimes you can't be in church. <clears throat> but for the most part, um, we should understand coming to church on Sunday as something God has given us to bless us, to renew us, to refresh us, to revive us. I was talking with another pastor recently about this issue, how modern Christians understand the concept of faithfulness to the fourth commandment in our context. And he said, you want to know something? He said, across America, the average church member is only in church twice a month. I said, wow, I'm surprised by that. He goes, yep, that's the statistics. Um, the average church member, I'm not even talking about, you know, I'm talking about church member is only in church twice a month. Um, listen, we give tithes because we recognize that God can do more with 100%, um, excuse me, 90% of our money than we can do with 100%. And we honor uh, the Lord's Day because, and we put aside a day um, that's different than the rest of the days of the week because we recognize that God can do more with six days than we can do with seven. See, when God judged Israel, what was happening was it was actually a sacrifice for a lot of people. You'd think, oh, they want a day off, right? Who wouldn't want a Sabbath day after working six full days? But in reality... Right? And we saw this, we see this in our, in our culture commercially. In reality, right, if you continue to trade you know, and do business, you could make more money and f- put more money in your pockets or whatever the case is. So ultimately, the, the principle of the Sabbath is about sacrifice. It says, I could use this day for my own purposes, but I'm going to put aside a day as holy to the Lord. Right? There's always exceptions to the rule, but we're talking about the rule. I'm going to put this day aside as holy to the Lord. And one of the reasons I would say why, um, why we don't often get as much out of this day as we should is because we don't put much into it. Right? That makes sense in every area of your life. Now, I just want to say, I'm not talking to everyone in here. <laughs> Okay, but I am talking to some people. Not talking to everybody, but I am talking to some people. I don't stay up till midnight on Saturday because I'll fall asleep in church. I don't not eat before I come to church on Sunday morning because I'll be suffering from hunger pains and I'll be distracted. I don't check my email in church, right? And I'm not giving you rules that you have to follow. What I'm saying is there are some things we can do to prepare our hearts to receive from God what he has intended to give us on this day. We walk away feeling empty. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't feel much. Well, we get out of it what we put into it. Um, <clears throat> one of the reasons we don't put much into the Lord's Day is because we don't know what it's for. And the reason for this day 
and it was the same reason for the Sabbath in the Old Testament, is for us to be renewed, for us to be refreshed, for us to be revived, not just in church, but even when we leave here. God wants to renew us and revive us, and it's no wonder we go into our work week totally exhausted because we've not put aside any time to hear from God, to rest, to receive God's strengthening, right? To fellowship with others, right? Leaving maybe our schedule open a little bit, making room for others on the Lord's Day, making room for God on the Lord's Day. And I want to say this, and I won't drag this on, but when we come together, when we come together on Sunday, we partake of what we call the means of grace. Now, just raise your hand if you've heard that word before, that, that phrase before. All right, so about half of us in here have heard the phrase, the means of grace. Now, there are a lot of means of grace, and means of grace are things that God gives us in our lives to transform us and conform us to the like, his likeness and image, right? If you're married, your marriage is a means of grace. Husbands, wives, you know, sometimes you, there's friction, but you're sanctified as you grow in maturity with each other. That's a means of grace, your job can be a means of grace, especially if you work for people who are hard taskmasters and you have to really seek God for strength and growth. But the ordinary means of grace that God has provided for us are the preaching of the word, the sacraments, prayer, and fellowship with other saints. And that happens nowhere in its fullness like it happens on Sunday when we come together. I've talked to, uh, I mean, this, this past week or so, I talked to a few other pastors about this passage, and they all say, whenever you talk about the Lord's Day or the Sabbath, it's the hardest thing to preach about. Because people all just think that you're saying, be in church. <laughs> and yes, that's true, but it's bigger than that. It's saying, coming here together is not about a burden, it's about a blessing. And if you can see that through See this through those lenses that God has actually created this and given us the means of grace, the preaching of the word, corporate prayer together and confession and all of these things for your benefit, to strengthen you in the faith, to equip you and empower you, not at the end of your week, but at the beginning. And this is the real kicker. In the new covenant, we, our day of rest is not the last day of the week. It's the beginning of the week. Sunday's the first day of the week. God, by his grace, has given us a day of freedom from anxiety, of resting from our labors, resting in Jesus, not at the end of our week after we've earned it, but at the beginning of our week. We start the week with grace. We start the week with mercy. We start the week with the means of God's spiritual strengthening to be able to face the week. And that's the goodness and power and love of God. Is grace is active even in our rest. We're not earning our rest, we're starting with rest. I'll give you this quote, this final quote here before we close. And this is from um, Dr. Jack Collins. He says, I believe that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is a tremendous gift of the gracious God to his people as a whole and to each family and individual. 
The glories of corporate worship are beyond the power of mortal tongue to describe. The call and welcome God gives his people, the solemn ordinances by which we taste the powers of the spiritual world, the privilege of joining our feeble and defiled voices with the heavenly host in praising and enjoying the God who made us for himself. The renewal of our glad submission to his ownership. All are blessings beyond our deserving or imagining. But also, how our natural life, which God also loves and delights in, needs this day. It is special and happy. The brightest day of the week. It's a day for special desserts, enjoyable table fellowship with family, friends, and outsiders too. I want to teach myself and my children to anticipate it, enjoy it, and to give hearty thanks for it at its passing. May the Lord make us people who eagerly anticipate the Lord's day. May our hearts, like Isaiah says, call the Sabbath a delight. Let's pray. Father, now we come before you seeking the balance. On one side, we want to avoid the strict legalism that the Pharisees had where they abused the principle of the Sabbath. But on the other hand, we also want to avoid license that because of grace, that there is nothing that we ought to do with our lives, with our time. We have no real priorities other than how we see fit to satisfy ourselves and our own minds. But yet remind us that it isn't the nine, but the Ten Commandments and the command that you've given us to put one day aside as holy reflects that you made the world in six days. And on the seventh day you rested from your labors and there are some things that are meant to be kept holy. And it's not so we can chalk down or write up some type of merit scoreboard, but rather that we can be refreshed, revived, and renewed in the worship of you, the hearing of your word, the partaking of the elements and the sacraments, fellowship with one another in prayer. God, I pray now that this morning and this message would not offend, but encourage that we would not somehow be on the defensive feeling like, Lord, we have to take account, but rather to look forward with anticipation and eagerness to how you have provided such great blessing and mercy for us when we come together on the Lord's day. In Christ's name we pray.